we have a great subscription offer for all our listeners. Subscribe to our digital edition for 12 months for just $24.99. That's six issues of our award-winning magazine delivered to your inbox for less than $4.20 an issue. Only $24.99 for a full year. So don't wait. To subscribe, go to australiangeographic.com.au forward slash Talking Australia. That's australiangeographic.com.au forward slash Talking Australia. Hi, I'm Ben Kantak and you're listening to Talking Australia, the podcast by Australian Geographic. Today I'm talking to historian, author and passionate fisher Anna Clark. Anna is the author of the acclaimed book The Catch, the story of fishing in Australia, in which she not only talks about the history of Australia's favourite pastime activity, but also addresses the drastic impact of both recreational and commercial fisheries on our fish stocks. She shares what got her hooked on fishing in the first place, what to learn from history, and how to ensure that there's a future for fishing in this country. And I'm thrilled to talk to Anna on this episode of Talking Australia. Welcome, Anna. Hi, thanks for having me. Fishing is a fantastic hobby. You can do it all your life. You're never too old for it, and, and you can be doing something else anything else and you're still thinking about fishing so it's the hobby that's always in the back of your mind even if you're not doing it <laughs> you know that, that's what golfers say as well but i feel like fishing is the better hobby <laughs> but yeah, it, you know it, it, it's such a good activity it gets us outdoors it's soothing it can be very exciting as well you know especially in these current strange times it is something that a lot of people can enjoy and, and do enjoy and you know some people like myself i, I picked it up again after years of not doing it um, during the pandemic and I just recently bought my, my children their first fishing rods and uh, was surprised how oh. excited they're about the whole experience. It was really cool to watch. So my yeah. first question is, how did you find your passion for fishing? What was your journey like? Well, probably like your children, it was my dad. Um, he yeah. grew up fishing with his brothers and his dad. Uh, and when I was little, one of my earliest memories is... Um, of sitting on the beach in the sunset watching my dad fish out on the rocks and it was probably too dangerous for me to go out there which is why he sort of deposited me on the beach but I loved just sitting on the sand making <laughs> yeah. sandcastles and you know hearing the yelps of excitement coming from out on the rocks um, and when I was old enough to join him um, he bought me a rod and I remember him um making me practice my casting across the grass first because that's, he didn't that's want sensible. That's very to, smart. Yeah. yeah. He didn't want me to <laughs> bonk him in the back of the head. And more importantly, he didn't want to spend all of his time fishing, bailing me out by pulling me out of tangles and so on. So I had I had to train. <laughs> yeah, that's um, a good that's a good approach. I like that. I should think about that. But it was good. I, I was totally, you know, pardon the pun, I was absolutely hooked. I just loved it. And I um I love the time it gave me with people that I was close to, like my dad and my granddad. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and my uncles. But I also really love doing it by myself. It's such an escape. Uh, and so even when I was young. I liked playing with my friends, but I also really liked going off by myself and and doing this by myself. 
there's something meditative about it, isn't it? Like even, absolutely. Even if yeah. you don't catch a fish, it's just it's just something about it. You know, it's it's quiet. Ideally, it's a very quiet place. It's just something very soothing. It, it's good for. We talk about headspace in these strange times. You know what I mean? That yeah. gives you like such a good time and such a good headspace. It absolutely. clears your mind. It's yeah. it's it's totally. Um, a mindfulness thing and I don't think there are many I mean bushwalking might be another example mm, or true. bird watching or something where you are in a place and the world around you changes so it's not like you know you're rushing to make sandwiches for school lunch or rushing to get to work or whatever you're like yeah. in a place and you can you're there long enough to listen or hear, hear or see the wind change or the sunset or the yeah. tide turn or the swell pick up um, and so you're actually, all of your senses are in that place. And I think it does something to our bodies. It takes us out. Um, it takes us out of ourselves. And, and I guess being in the natural world, they don't care that there's a pandemic, you know, no, they're not no. listening to the latest <laughs> numbers or the lockdown. Or, yeah, uh, and that's actually really soothing as well to be in a world where that doesn't matter. Yeah. Um, and you can just be. No, you're not only a passionate Fisher yourself, you're obviously also um, a passionate historian. And uh, what I find amazing is nowadays we have this huge array, this huge array of, of technology to our, at our disposal, like fishing trackers on boats, um, apps that tell us the best fishing times, advanced fishing rods, fancy lures, bait at every second server in the country. And still, it is not guaranteed we catch a fish every time we go out, but we can just stop on the way home and buy dinner at the supermarket, you know. But when we go back in time, back in history, it was a whole different story. How do we have to picture the fishing traditional societies we're doing in Australia? Yeah, it's a great question because at one level, it's, it's totally different, as you say. You know, there's no four-wheel drives, there's no outboard motors, there's no tide app yeah. if you went out on a boat at night you're charting you know you're navigating by the stars you're not navigating with the gps mm. um many people couldn't swim and the things we take for granted around around safety or um you know finding a, a, a place is 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 very different but at the same time it's still sticking a line on a stick and chucking it in the water mm. and waiting for the fish to bite and so they're still the same i think uh, it's, you know, as a historian, I'm wary of imposing my own kind of worldview into yeah, people from yeah. hundreds of years ago. But I feel in that uh, maybe primitive or bodily sensation, the excitement that they felt catching a fish, I assume is kind of similar to the excitement that I feel catching a fish in that uh, buzz that we get as mm. hunters, perhaps. Um and the technology, although we are fishing with carbon fibre rods and, yeah. you know, nile, you know, plastic string rather than rather than yeah. hand woven fibres from a Karajong tree, it's still basically kind of roughly the same idea, um, which I think is kind of cool as well. Like, there's not there's only so much you can do, right, um, to change to increase the ratio of hunter to hunter. That's mm. still um, yeah, and I suppose in the past, one thing at their advantage was that there were so many more fish around. So you could use slightly yeah. more rudimentary technology, yeah. but um, your likelihood of catching a fish was much higher. But what, what, what kind of equipment did they use? 
I guess I can only really talk about Australian experiences course, yeah, because course, that's yeah. where I've researched. Um, but, you know, thinking in particular, I live in Sydney now um, and part of my every day is to go swimming and snorkelling around the beaches around Sydney when I'm allowed to, <laughs> not in lockdown, um, and uh, and imagining what, it, what that would have been like. And the first yeah. thing I think we would have noticed is just the sheer amount of fish, the... the um, the natural bounty that was there. Yeah. Um, it would, you know, people were able to, um, local uh, Gadigal people uh, and Darawal people were able to literally stick their head underwater and spear fish, which, wow. which shows not only the skill, I think, of those communities and their knowledge, but also the number of fish that were there. In terms of... Um, so men would usually be spear fishers okay, and they yeah. would um, have, uh, you know, long spears with multiple prongs that had been fashioned together and they would um, be out in boats often or little canoes, spearing fish from those canoes or from a rock. Uh, and women actually were the line fishers in the oh, really? societies. So hand lining, yeah. And and um, I mentioned the Karajong tree. That's actually a very common tree in New South Wales, up and down uh, the sort of east side of New South Wales. Um, and uh, that's known in um, the Darug language as fishing line. So it was literally the fishing line tree. <laughs> All right. Um, if you ever see a Karajong tree, that's, yeah. that's what fishing it line was tree. used cool. for. <laughs> fishing line tree, that's right. Um, and women uh, would uh, pull off the bark of the Karajong tree and chew it and sort of make the fibres malleable and then roll them in their, between their hands and along their thighs wow. to make the long fishing twine, um, which they then attached um, shell hooks, sometimes bone hooks, but usually shell hooks to the end of those lines. And I think, you know, sometimes they would use spit-outs um, shellfish to create a kind of burly trail to attract yeah, fish yeah. to the side of their boat, but the, these shell hooks were had a lot of mother of pearl in them and so you can see the glint of that ah, would right. often um they weren't necessarily baited hooks but that the actual glint would attract fish to bite on those hooks yeah. Yeah. yeah that is amazing you know nowadays pollution is such a big issue for a lot of bodies of water in australia like for example eating fish from the sydney harbour is probably not the healthiest thing to do yes. <laughs> anymore uh, there are many other areas that have been hit really hard. Like what, what role does history play when it comes to conservation um, issues like water pollution? Well, a lot of early industry was attracted to water because before cars, obviously mm. water was the easiest way of transporting. So if you were on a waterway, whether that be, you know, the Parramatta River in Sydney or the Maribyrnong River in Melbourne, you could get boats up and down. So you yeah. could get your product and conveniently on a waterway, it was a great drain. So if you had an abattoir, you could just hose out the blood and the guts straight into the river or whatever industry you had. Uh, so very quickly, a lot of those waterways around, in, you know, rapidly industrialising and populating um, colonies. So this is a colonial issue rather than a pre-colonial issue, yeah, pollution, yeah. Um, you know, really quickly impeded um, had an impact on on the natural environment. But even more than, well, alongside of pollution is overfishing. Yeah. Um, so before, you know, prior to colonisation, the populations, Aboriginal populations were, were very mobile and they were very attuned to the seasons. So when fishing was 
mm. you know, a bit quieter in Sydney Harbour. People moved elsewhere or moved into shell, you know, shellfish or, or, or shifted with, with, with whatever population because they had such an intimate knowledge of country and, and, and the sea. Yeah. That, um, and there wasn't such, you know, because that population was mobile, there wasn't such a constant pressure on the resources. Mm. Uh, but when um, colonial cities kind of established themselves in those places, very quickly the pressure was put on those resources and there wasn't really an understanding of, of how long certain species lived and when they became sexually mature. Um, and then it, there was a sort of an extractive mentality. So the natural bounty was seen as kind of limitless and if you caught all the fish in your bay then you just went to the next bay and the next bay and the next bay um and so pollution did have a big effect uh and continues to have a big effect on um on heavily populated areas but um i think much more of an issue is um yeah overfishing and uh, and, a, and a lack of understanding a very belated understanding about the sustainability of those resources yeah. And I feel that the issue with conservation can be that the baseline for us is where things were when we were young and holding, that against, holding that against the decline throughout our lifetime. So in my case, yeah. a time span of 30 something years. And when we go back in history and read about the state of things like hundreds of years ago, it yeah. feels almost impossible to grasp how vibrant the wildlife and marine life really was. Like the, totally. the quantitative aspect of history, like data, numbers yes. and thoughts yes. can paint a picture. Yeah, we, It's very exact and can paint a picture, but somehow it feels surreal. So how important is the qualitative aspect of history? Yeah. Stories told and presented, how important is that? Um, that? That comment about shifting baseline syndrome, um, which was popularised by the fisheries scientist Daniel Pauly, is one mm. of the great kind of ideas we have about fisheries that, you know, we, we're very good at remembering what it was yeah. like in our own lifetime, but it's very hard to remember, as you say, what it might have been like 150 years ago or, you know, 4,000 years ago, of course. Mm. Um, so in terms of, of how, um, you know, how, how we get what it might have been like, yes, we have yes. to broaden our range of what is a source and, and what is a scientific. And mm. so there are fisheries scientists who are increasingly looking at newspaper accounts of catch records or fishing ads um, so that they can see, oh, wow, there were 14 paddle steamers operating in Sydney Harbour in, you know, 1890s offering kind of tours of snapper yeah, fisheries. Yeah. And by 1901, you know, there were six. So what happened? Um, and so they're using, you know, there might not have been fisheries scientists doing proper kind of biota surveys, um, but we can get other clues about when there were shifts happening um, uh, in time. And in fact, going back to some of those early newspaper reports and guidebooks, what they were catching is just kind of, you know, you can see photos of newspapers of, of sort of steamships that are just full. Mountains, <laughs> of, mountains um, and mountains of fish. Yeah. Mountains and mountains of, of, of what they thought was a, was an end an endless resource. But then interestingly, I think, um, you know, there's this pressure from from fishing, yeah. Um, but it's also fishers who are waving the first flags of uh, concern in the eight in the late nineteenth century, saying, "Hey, where hang, where are all the fish going? Um, they're being overnetted, or the, the mesh, the net mesh is too small, so we're catching all the babies. Um, so there's population collapses. So the first kind of environmental movements around." Um, 
oceans in Australia come from uh, recreational fishers and who are actually, you know, who who are really concerned about yeah. um, protecting, uh, I guess, protecting their pastime in a kind of self-interested way, but also as a sort of response to this is not working, you know, something is not right here yeah. and we need to fix it. That is fascinating because, again, to the point of trying to grasp, um, you know, how much more marine life there was, I find like stories told are a little bit more, a little bit easier to relate to than than hard numbers. Mm. And, and and even you know, to your point, we, we don't have those numbers, those hard stats and all that. Yeah, um, sure. In general, I feel that fishing is such an interesting topic from a political point of view, because on the one hand side, it's highly toxic. You know, you talked about overfishing, we're overfishing our oceans. But on the other hand, there's, you know, strong argument that fishing done in a sustainable way by the average citizen, so to say recreational fishermen and women, can lead to a heightened awareness of issues and actually strengthen attempts to protect our waters. Um, mm. Where are things in Australia, like species lost, where, like how, how much have we lost so far? And what would you say to a person that is highly critical of any form of fishing in general, you know, why you personally fish? Yeah, that's a great question. Lots of curly ones thrown in there as well for good measure. Um, <laughs> It's it's very difficult because um, fishing, uh, recreational fishing, creates a lot of jobs um, and and generates a huge amount of money for the government. You know, think of all the licenses that are bought, the fishing rods that you just bought for your kids. Yeah, um, they're going to the servo and buying bait and tackle and so on. Um, it supports a really important big industry and it gets people outdoors appreciating the natural world, which is really um, vital for mental health and also physical well-being. Yeah. Uh, there's lots of data about the sorts of, you know, going into nature, being spending time with your family. Absolutely. You can quantify these things, you know, in terms of public health measures. Um, at the same time, there's increasing data to show that, that there, there are millions of fishers in Australia. I don't know the exact figures off the top of my head, but, you know, including licence holders and their children, yeah. um, there are millions. It's the most popular national pastime um, sport, you could say. Yeah. Uh, and and fish are caught. Lots and lots and lots of fish are caught. Yeah. So it does have an impact. So it's very difficult, you know, but at the same time, they are very, um, as you say, you know, really active in uh, that movement for sustainability. Um, it, it's a tension between keeping that going, which is a re really important positive and, and an important way of connecting yeah. people to what you know, I think is a very beautiful and resource-rich country and doing it in a sustainable way. Um, to the people who say, you know, why do you fish at all? Um, I guess everyone needs a little bit of knowledge about what they're trying to catch and why and what are sustainable catches, for example. And I suppose um, we, those of us who aren't uh, scientists need to rely on our fisheries scientists to help us make those decisions so that when you catch an undersized fish, you put it back. Um, and what is a sustainable fishery? And, you know, if I want to buy fish, is, am I better off going and catching it myself if I want to eat fish, for example? Yeah. Um, and if I can't catch it, what is, what is a suitable one to buy? Uh, but, the, the, you know, these are all of the questions that animate those of us who are concerned about the natural world, but at the same time, really enjoy fishing and want to be able, like I want my kids to be able to fish. So it's in my interest to make it sustainable. But at the same time, I'm absolutely aware that there, you know, populations put pressure on fisheries and how do we do that? How do we keep up 
that yeah. um, that pastime and that connection. On a previous episode, we talked to Valerie Taylor about her career as a professional spearfisher and, mm. and, and also those contests that were held in these dream locations. And it was really interesting to hear her talk about the moment she and her husband realized how much damage to the reefs um, their sport was causing and, and how, in general, the decline of fish was so drastic that, that they actually stopped at some point with the spot and said, this, mm. this is ridiculous. You know, we're basically, mm. we're emptying out all these reefs. Mm. Um, again, talking about the baseline and, and she talked about reefs back then, you know, in, in the sixties and nowadays you would go to these destinations and snorkel and say, wow, the amount of fish is amazing. It's mind blowing. But she's like, you would never be able to see what we have seen um, again to that. But how much of, of a change did, did you notice during your lifetime? You know, said you, you were introduced to fishing early on, rock fishing and all sorts. What, what's something that you can, like, how much change did you notice personally? Where I fish mostly in the south coast of New South Wales doesn't have a huge amount of fishing pressure. So I haven't noticed huge changes to the small, very small place that I fish have fished in all my life, which is sort of a national park, basically, in the south coast of New South Wales. Yeah. Because... You know, commercial netters can't get in there because it's a rock. You know, it's rock fishing, <laughs> yeah. um, and it's and it's quite inaccessible, so it doesn't have a sort of a population pressure. Um, but it definitely, you know, you definitely notice busy places get fished out very quickly. And um, I even notice it around Sydney, for example. Um, thinking about spear fishing, yeah. I often snorkel in a place which is uh, permits line fishing but doesn't permit spear fishing, and the fish just come up to you because they know that you're not a threat. And so you can turn around and have 30 brim following you yeah. curiously. Um, and I go to other places where spearfishing is permitted and, and they're just not there uh, because they know that, you know, a human in the water, it means goodbye, yeah. basically. Threat. Goodbye, it's a, a threat. threat. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. exactly. So I, I, I do notice um, those, those pressures. And when you go to places where that are... Um, you know, I, th I think it's worthwhile keeping some of those green zones where you can't do anything just so we can stick our head under the water and go, wow. Uh, not to mention all of the scientific reasons as to yes. why they're really important, sort of incubators for, for fish breeding and population um, maintenance and so on. But the actual feeling you get as a human when you stick your head under the water and see that, that stunning diversity that Valerie is describing um, even if it, you know, it might not be a patch on what she remembers, but it's still so incredible. And I, and I think it's really important for all of us to, um, to insist that there are, that those pockets remain, um, for the, for the scientific sort of imperative of, of population yeah. sustainability that they provide, but also that realization of, of what we might be able to aspire to, um, in terms of the natural world. I thank you very much for the time. That was a very interesting and insightful interview with you. Thank you. Thanks, Ben. It was an absolute pleasure. That's it for today's episode of Talking Australia. If you have questions or comments, feel free to reach out. Write us an email, podcast at australiangeographic.com or find us on Instagram at australiangeographic. And make sure to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Spotify or wherever you get your podcast from. Thanks for listening and here next time.